In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of First Kings. Um, we didn't have Bible study last week, um, but uh, does anyone remember what was the last chapter that we studied? The altars? Yes, so can you elaborate? Um, he basically challenged their gods, or them, Who's to offer... He? Elijah. Okay, Elijah. Offer, uh, challenged the people mm -hmm. um, to create an altar for their gods okay. with every chance of, and asked them to pray that their gods would consume them, consume the whole offering in fire. But he gave them like every chance for it to happen. Like it, it was the gods of fire and they were like, I don't know, they used an altar that had been used before, so they like there was this idea that it would work or something. It may be leaning left there. But well, uh, Elijah used a broken altar. Oh, he used an and altar yeah, broken. so that's the altar yeah. he used. And then his offering to God, he like even covered it with water and did everything for it not to work, and it was consumed. Okay, very good. And so uh, Elijah did the standoff. Um, in order to prove to all of the people that God is the true God and not all of these other gods uh, that the, the priests of Baal, of course, who are, Baal is the, um, one of their gods, um, who they were, they were believing in and they were pushing the worship of these other gods in Israel. And so this was done for the sake of, of course, the king and the priests and all of the people, right? Um, and then after God sent down fire to consume the offering, uh, Elijah, of course, was vindicated, and then he commanded that the priests of Baal be killed. Okay, um, and so, and then after that, he went to King Ahab and he told him, "Go quickly, um, because it is going to start raining." Right, because there had been a drought now for three and a half years, uh, and 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 Elijah said, "Now, because Elijah has prayed and asked God that the drought would end and that um, it would rain on the on the earth." Uh, there that uh, it would rain and so all of this was to show that God is the true God right and we spoke also about how God is being patient with them even the drought itself is something that shows God's patience even though the people and King Ahab would see that this is a curse and this is something that is causing people to suffer and all of these things but God could have done far worse to them you know, like if he if he truly wanted to destroy them, he could destroy them instantly. The fact that he even allowed the drought was a wake-up call to get them to come back, right? And everything that's being done here is to make it clear who is it that the people should worship, okay? So that's uh, a very important thing. So we're going to continue now in chapter 19, um, where things kind of take an interesting turn. So it says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Okay. Who did we say Jezebel was? Who was she? She was Ahab's the queen, and she was what? Ahab's wife. Ahab's wife, yes. What else was she? Sidonian priestess. Priestess. Priestess of who? Uh, Baal. Baal. Okay. So she she was a priestess of Baal. So so the idea, like she is personally humiliated, of course, because of, of what happened. But what's interesting to see here is that 
what is it that she completely ignored? She didn't care that the drought was over, right? This is the thing that they had been suffering with for years. She didn't care that the drought was over. That didn't, didn't register in her mind, like, okay, maybe I need to pay attention to what Elijah was saying. Um, she didn't care that God was the one who brought, brought down fire from heaven. I mean, when was the last time that Baal brought down fire from heaven, right? Like, like, like when did they see that happen before, right? And yet they see that God brought down fire from heaven, and he was the one who brought back the rain again. And so all these things that God had done in order to get the attention of the people and to get them to return back to worshiping him, and even for someone like Jezebel um, to, to, to get her attention, all of that was lost on them, right? Like she was so consumed with her hatred, with her pride, um, with wanting power and control that she didn't care about anything except she wants revenge on Elijah for what is it that he had done. And it's, it says something because... A lot of times people will say, well, why is it that God doesn't prove his existence? You know, like people say, if God wants us to believe in him, then he can just do miracle and, and we will all believe in him. But that's a very simplistic view, right? It is, that view assumes that the reason that people do not believe is because of a lack of knowledge, right? And simply, if we are given the proper knowledge, then we will believe, right? That would be assuming humanity is very logical um, and, 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 and makes decisions in a logical way. That would be a logical conclusion, right just like looking at this situation logically it makes sense that you would believe in, in in god right like because of what just happened why would you continue believing in Baal after what just happened right but people are don't operate according to logic right they operate according to other reasons and maybe i have attachment to certain things like she obviously is attached to her position as being a priestess of Baal. she has you know maybe grew up with the idea of the existence of Baal. She doesn't want to let it go. She benefits somehow from the existence of Baal, the Baal being a, a god. She doesn't want to let go of the benefits of that belief or the benefits of other people believing that, that she is gaining control and being queen and all these things and influencing everyone because she is saying that we should worship Baal. Because the thing is with these other gods is that the people would determine what the god wants, right, in, in, in essence, because they're not real, right? So... You're worshiping a God that's not real. Who decides really what is it that God wants? It's the people. The people are going to make up a story, a mythology, and they're going to say, this God wants such and such. And what is it that they're going to invent? They're going to invent something that's beneficial to them. So if you have these class of people who are the priests of Baal, and they're telling people this is what Baal wants us to do, what is it he's, they're going to say? They're going to say stuff that they want, right? Whereas with God, he has his own will. And maybe the things that God asks us to do, we don't want. Certainly the things that God was asking Ahab and Jezebel and the people to do was something contrary to what they wanted. They didn't want to worship him. They wanted to worship other gods. They wanted to do things differently, right? And they wanted to be in control. Whereas those who are worshiping God do not worship in, in, with control. They actually worship in submission, in humility, and surrendering my will to the will of God rather than being the one to determine and to wield the power of God in essence to control the people and tell them what is it that they should do and what they should believe. So she had a lot of, um, she had a lot of interest in maintaining the status quo and what is it that they were doing from the beginning. And so she didn't care even about the personal benefit that she would gain from the fact that the drought is over. It's very easy for people who don't want to believe in something to make reasons to justify why something could be the, the case. Not the truth, but just a way to accommodate these, this information in a way that doesn't cause them to have to reevaluate their whole belief system. And so this is what is it she's doing, right? Saying, uh, it doesn't matter to me 
whatever benefits are going to come from this that the drought is over that god is showing his power no i'm i'm seeking only the revenge to attack elijah the prophet because she sees him as being the one behind all of this even though elijah makes it clear that he is not the one like that elijah is the one who brought fire from heaven what other priest could do that what other priest could bring fire from heaven right he's god is the one doing it he's praying to god god is the one doing it and so she's still refusing to believe right and when he saw that so referring to when he saw that jezebel is now seeking his life he arose and ran for his life and went to beersheba which belongs to judah and left his servant there but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said it is enough now lord take my life for i am no better than my father's what do you think about this turn of events he's depressed why reaction from from Jezebel he wanted a different reaction which would have been what repentance repentance that she would believe in God okay but we just saw Elijah in the last chapter very bold standing in front of these hundreds of priests right um, of course his life is in danger but he is very bold and he's doing all these things with like full faith that God is present and he is going to burn and consume the sacrifice and all of this, right? And then very shortly afterward, now that Jezebel is like trying to attack him, from the very beginning, Jezebel wanted to kill him, wanted to kill all the prophets, right? So what changed here? You know, why is it that Elijah, who is a very bold prophet, why is he acting this way? like i don't know why he's doing this but i can say that i would i have done the same like it's not it, it's something that i can very much relate to like when you go when you're riding a high like something mm. amazing happens yeah uh, often you will like i will crash mm. after it uh, or or like you feel like you know if there he he was probably like megan was saying he was probably expecting like some glorious thing but reality hits and you're like well this is not what i was expecting so you'll go to the other extreme of like sadness and yeah yeah so sometimes faith comes in spurts you know like like we have a, a certain period of time where we're very strong in faith when we're going through maybe a difficult challenge and then maybe once that challenge is done we we crash like you said like we're we, 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 we are trying to process all that happened maybe we're very emotionally drained because of all that happened um and and also like both of you said like he would have hoped that this action would have caused all of israel to repent right like 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 because elijah is logical right let's just as he said before if if baal is god worship him but if god is the true god worship him right it's a logical decision based on who is god right but like we said people don't operate necessarily in a, in a, in a logical way also um God could have allowed this period in Elijah's life so that he doesn't fall into pride because of what he had just done. 
imagine that you were Elijah in this situation and you just stood up in front of like all of these enemies and through your faith and your prayers that God sent fire from heaven and, 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 and vindicated you and showed you all of this. Like how easy would it have been for all of this to go to Elijah's head and for him to start like, you know, getting very puffed up as a result of, of what just happened, right? So sometimes also God compensates, like he gives us periods of success followed by periods of weakness. And sometimes those periods of weakness are actually by design and they're not bad. They're, they're there to recalibrate us, to make us to remember who we are and who God is. This great accomplishment that was done, it was not done through you, Elijah. It was done through God, right? But I want, I want you to remember that. Um, once we taste the human weakness again, we kind of come back down to earth and we realize, yeah, like I can't make fire come down from heaven and I can't do like all of these things. God is the one who, who did it and he used me to do it right in the time, but it is not me, right? So here we're starting to see this natural fear enter into Elijah, right? To the point where he's saying what? It is enough right? It is enough. Like, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of living in this godless place. I'm tired of all these people being God, like ungodly. That and, 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 and if I'm supposed to be the prophet, right? And my job is to bring the word of God to the people. Well, I brought the word of God and I brought miracles and I brought all these things to the people. And in the end, the people still don't believe. It's like, I'm giving up. Like I've, I've done, I've done the maximum. Like what, what more could I as the prophet do? And if even this doesn't work, then I'm giving up right we also experience this maybe at lower levels right like when we feel like we've done all that we can to serve someone or to do good in some way and in the end the people still don't believe or it doesn't click maybe someone in a sunday school teacher right says like i've i've taught them i've spent time with them i've visited them i've i've done all that i can do and in the end i feel like they're not getting it or they haven't changed or they're still bent on like li living a life away from God I feel it is enough or maybe we feel like we have suffered in the world for a long time right and we say it is enough like I've, I'm at the end of what I can give right and now we know that this is a human emotion that in the moment Elijah was feeling but it wasn't indicative of the reality right the reality is is that Elijah wasn't his life wasn't going to end and there was going to be still more good that Elijah does and that God actually is going to take Elijah in a miraculous way up to heaven, right? So, so he is suffering in this moment and out of fear and all of these things, right? But, but, but God is allowing this. God is allowing this and he has to go through this, that there is some benefit for him even to experience this. Okay. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. So this is the period of time where after the angel gave him some food to eat, okay, trying to strengthen him, bring him back to his senses, make him realize that like your life is not over, Elijah, you still have more to be done. Um, and now he begins to travel. Where does he go? Mount Horeb. What is Mount Horeb? 
the mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments? Yeah, it's also called Mount Sinai, right? So this mountain, okay, he, he travels there 40 days um, and 40 nights without food. Okay, so he's going to the place where um, Moses received the Ten Commandments. So this is not in Israel now, okay? Or not, he's left Israel. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. So you can see here that his desperation, number one, he sees that all his efforts have been in vain. Number two, he sees that I'm the only one left. I'm the only person left who is faithful to God. Everyone else has fallen. Everyone else has fallen into idolatry. Okay? So that's why he says, I alone am left, and even I, they seek to take my life. Okay? And all of the great works that had been done, they were not enough to change the hearts of the people. Okay? So, so here in his own estimation, everything that he did was useless. There was no value in it. But of course, God knows differently. Like God, God was aware of, of what is it that's happening and, and, and the effect that Elijah had. And actually, God also knows that there are other people who are still faithful. It is not only um, Elijah himself. But, but this is his emotions. We see, we see him speaking out of his feelings. What is it that he feels in that moment of sadness, desperation, despair, fear, just kind of having given up, right? Having, having completely given up. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. Okay? So Elijah is now on the same mountain where God appeared to Moses, okay? And what is it that he's learned? Like, what is, it, what is the message that God is wanting him to learn from this, this experience, right? He sees first this um, great wind that tore into the mountains and bro broke the rock. But it says the Lord was not in the wind. And then after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then after the fire, a still small voice. What do you think is the lesson to all of us from, from kind of this? Why, why is God doing this? So this was in response to him saying, like, I'm the only one left. And I did all these things. So in that light, I feel like maybe, <coughs> like it's, like he works in all the small movements, right? He's not just going to flip the world upside down in one shot and it's not going to happen all of a sudden, but like Elijah's work and whoever comes after him and like all these small little things is where God is working in the hearts of the people. Good. So that's definitely one thing to get from this is that um, the way that God works tends to be hidden. It tends to be in a way unexpected, not something that is clear and obvious. But even though God has the power to do so, because people always ask that question, like God, like if you wanted to, to fix things, why don't you just fix them? Why, why do you have to like, why are you allowing evil to continue? Why don't you just step in and fix, right? But we see that even though God is, is powerful and he's showing here, demonstrating his power, and yet 
even in those moments, like like saying God was not in them, meaning meaning this was not the manifestation of God in how God is going to communicate to us. Okay, good. What else? Yeah. Elijah, at this point, he uh, he had like uh, aggravated emotions and feelings, but God wants to give him peace. So he he like his emotions as if he was telling him your emotions like the earthquake, like the fire. But just listen to the to the small voice and listen to me, and that's the peace that you should have during troubled times. Good. So, so one thing we learn from this is to seek the like stillness to hear the voice of God, and that in the midst of whether it be emotions or tumultuous things or or or, or even in the normal distraction of our day and in the world, where do we find the voice of God? We find it when we come. Like just as the Lord said, like when you pray, go into your room and close the door, right? Like like in the silence, when in an, our intentional desire to hear the voice of God, we will hear it, but it will not be an obvious voice, meaning, meaning God is not shouting at us, right? God is whispering. And in order for us to hear the whisper, there is something that we have to do. Like we have to quiet ourselves. We have to place ourselves in a place in an environment where we can hear him. We have to be consistent in prayer. We have to, like, and not not just making our requests, but we have to also be listening, and we have to be doing the things that allow us to draw near to God, right? To hear Him more closely. We can't be like actively living in sin without repentance, and then expecting that we're going to hear the voice of God, right? So, so all of these things are kind of lessons here for us to to learn, and for Elijah also to see that, like, seek me seek me and and like tell like don't just don't just express like d be in despair but but pray like bring bring your feelings of sadness and despair and all these things to god so that he can um heal us from from it okay um in in john chapter six um the people were speaking to the lord um and uh he said to them therefore they said to him what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Right, so even in the time of Christ, the people were looking for these big events, right? You want us to believe in you, right? What sign are you going to do, right? In the Old Testament, right, the manna came down from heaven, right? What is the big thing? What is the big, loud thing, obvious thing? that you're going to do so that we believe. So what is it that Christ responded when they said this to him? It says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Meaning, the Son of God walked the earth for 33 years, and the majority of the world didn't even recognize him, right? Like, it was a whisper. It was something that, it's not that he didn't reveal himself, it's not that he didn't talk about himself, it's not that he didn't do miracles, it's not, but he did it in a way that it was not like an in-your-face thing to where everybody is now going to believe. And when they asked him for miracles, he said no. When they wanted to make him king, he ran away, right? Whenever he would do miracles in certain places, he would tell the people, don't tell anyone about what is it that has happened, 
right? There was there was a whisper. But the people who truly experienced him, the, who truly knew him, who truly came to believe him, were the ones who their heart was prepared. You know, someone like Zacchaeus, for instance. Zacchaeus was in a group of many, many people, a crowd of people, right? And yet his heart, being prepared to meet the Lord, decided to climb the tree in order to see him because he was too short to see him, okay? And he was the only one to whom the Lord came and he said, Zacchaeus, today I will dine in your house. Why didn't he say that to anyone else, the hundreds of other people who were there? Why just Zacchaeus is the only one who would have this kind of like reverse invitation, like where the Lord would say, today I'm coming to your house to eat. And then, of course, we know when he went to Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus offered repentance. Zacchaeus returned. He said he would, he would return the money that he had stolen from the people. All of these things, right, happened quietly, right? Have happened quietly. Maybe even the people like couldn't understand what is it that would have happened to Zacchaeus after this? Why is it that he stopped being a tax collector? Why is it that he changed his life? Why is it that he's not the same as before, right? All of these things were happening very quietly, right not not in a in a grand way of course we know that in the second coming of christ it will be in a grand way it'll be a way that it's not like he says what like the first time i came as a lamb the second time i will come as a lion right the first time he is coming to suffer the second time he is coming to judge right so so the way here that the lord is interacting with the world and interacting with the people it is done with a whisper right those who seek him those who who want him will we'll learn of him, will we'll, we'll experience him, will benefit from him. But those who are simply looking for miracles, now we see here that he did all of these miracles, Elijah did, and the people still didn't repent. Okay? So it was, um, so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So his mantle is like his cloak, his clothes that he is wearing. Um, and so he wrapped his face because he is afraid to look upon the glory of God. This is the same mountain, remember, that God appeared to Moses. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. They seek to take my life. Right, so you see even like the the way that Elijah is speaking, it's like, God, you owe me something, right? You, you, you Like, I, I was zealous, I risked my life, I did it for the sake of your people, um, they are the one who have torn down your altars, why didn't you make my work to be more successful than this, right? Um, and again, he repeats the same thing, I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Then maybe something strange <laughs> it says then the lord said to him go return on your way to the wilderness of damascus and when you arrive anoint haziel as king over syria I'm like what does that have to do with anything that we're talking about like why are you saying that like okay so <laughs> okay we'll keep going and then i'll go also you shall anoint jehu the son of nimshi as king over israel and elisha the son of shephat of abel mahola you shall anoint as prophet in your place okay it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. What do you think about this answer? <laughs> huh? Okay, pretty upset. What is it that he's asking Elijah to do? Hmm? Anoint kings? 
which and to anoint Elisha who will be his successor yes how would you feel in this moment <laughs> I'm about to die okay that's one thing what else Yes, God is telling him, you're not the only one because you, you're going to anoint your successor. What else? If he's talking about his successor, I don't know if he would feel like maybe, maybe I didn't do a very good job. Yeah, maybe he feels God is rejecting him. It's like you're talking about, like, I'm going to go anoint my successor. Like, maybe, maybe I didn't do what I'm supposed to do. Why are you having me anoint my successor now? Okay. But what else? What is he what is what is he asking him to do? Well, he's not going back to the people who are trying to kill him yet. He's he's telling him to go to Syria in order to anoint kings. Right? That's the first the first thing he said here is um Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Yeah. I think he's maybe telling him to stop thinking and just do the next thing he needs do to do. Do the next thing. Yes. Because he's saying, you are a prophet still. Go do prophet stuff. You know, like, like continue your prophethood, right? Like, my mission for you is not over. You had a job here. You did your job. Don't worry about the outcome of it. Don't worry about what happened as a result of it. You were faithful to me. You, you put your life on the line. You served the people. You, you, you were very bold. You, you brought, you're the one who, who brought the drought, and then through your prayers, the drought ended. You did all that you could do in this. Don't worry about what happens after this. You play a part in the whole game, in the whole, in the whole plan. You played your part, and you did what I asked you to do. Right Now I want you to go do something else. Okay. Now it's interesting that's not clear here but this king Haziel he's actually why is it that 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 God is asking Elijah to anoint him to be king because Haziel is going to attack Israel and he wants Haziel to attack Israel as a punishment for their sin one more kind of uh, w one more reason for them to turn from their sin and to repent one more reason for them to turn to God so even this action is related to his mission, which is to bring the people back to God again. He did it in many ways, right? At the beginning, Elijah prayed that there would be drought. Was the drought enough for the people to repent? No. Then he said, okay, we're going to have this big standoff scene with the priest of Baal so that everybody sees that Baal is not a true God and only God is the true God. He did that. Did the people believe? No. Now we're going to have another nation come and attack Israel so that the people would repent. Right? And actually, Elijah was at the center of all of these things. So even though maybe in the mind of Elijah at this point in time, like maybe this is not clear, but this is actually w the, 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 the thinking behind it that God was, was operating. So when we think about ourselves, like if we were in this position like Elijah is, and we just had this kind of like event happen that was a big disappointment. Like it's a very big disappointment what happened to me. And then God says, continue on and do these other things. And we're like, want to kind of hang out here and lick our wounds more. It's like, I want some sympathy about what is it that's happening. I don't want to just keep going. But God says, no, it's time for you to keep going, right? 
it's time it's time for you to let go of this and keep going your role in this like you have to remember like we are not god we are not god if god calls us to play a role we play the role that we are called to play whatever outcome is the outcome it's not up to me because each person as they have free will can choose for themselves how they will respond god does not compel people to repent god does not compel people to respond positively to any work that we do even good work like when we talk about evangelism for instance the success rate of evangelism is pretty low you know like one of the reasons that makes evangelism so difficult is because the majority of the people that you try to evangelize will not believe right so a person can very quickly become disheartened because they have not they feel like i haven't done right like even when the lord was speaking to the apostles when he sent them out two by two he said what if you go to a city and they reject you there it's like dust the the, the 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 dust off of your feet right and go on to the next city right don't don't be like wallowing in anger or sadness that you have been rejected in a certain place no just go to the next place right continue your mission don't look so much at the outcome and this is one thing that we struggle a lot with is because we care too much about the outcome we care too much about how many people came to our meeting we care too much about how many people responded positively to something that i did we care too much like about that what god looks for is have you been honest and faithful with what you have been given if you have been faithful and honest with what you have been given then then, then that is like that is what we're called for right that is what we're called to do it's not about the outcome because we don't control the outcome right we don't control the outcome okay so god told elijah to travel by another route and go to syria to anoint haziel as king right so this was another mission but actually ultimately this would be accomplished through elisha right so the, the, this is this is something that will ultimately happen through elisha and it's mentioned in second kings chapter 8 okay um uh the 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 previous king okay of syria is ben hadad so he is going to be the, the king that comes before haziel and we read about this in second kings chapter 8 it's in second kings chapter 8 it says then he said in his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed and the man of god wept and haziel said why is my lord weeping he answered because i know the evil that you will do to the children of israel this is so this is elisha speaking to haziel at the time of his coronation because he is anointing him to be king and so elisha as he is anointing haziel to be the king he haziel is asking elisha why are you weeping remember elisha not elijah now right elisha is after him he's going to be the one to accomplish this and so elisha is responding and saying because i know the evil that you will do to the children of israel their strongholds you will set on fire and their young men you will kill with the sword and you will dash their children and rip open their women with child so haziel said but what is your servant a dog that he should do this gross thing and elisha answered the lord has shown me that you will become king over syria so again from the very beginning here at the time when elijah is 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 kind of in his lowest state and god tells him continue your mission you're going to go and we're going to anoint haziel to be king and ultimately haziel is going to come and harass the children of israel which is still part of god's intentional plan to bring his people back to repentance again 
Okay, Elijah would anoint Jehu king of Israel. So the order for the kings of Israel after Ahab is Ahab and then his son Ahaziah and then Joram and then Jehu. Jehu is also here mentioned. Okay, all of these kings are going to um, come after um, Ahab. And the details here are all mentioned in the book of 2 Kings. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So again, God is revealing to Elijah, what? You are not the only one, right? There are 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed down to Baal, okay? And, and so um, Elijah was overly pessimistic, okay? His work did make an impact even though it was not known to him. I'm sure that these 7,000 in Israel were comforted and encouraged through the work that Elijah had done, through the boldness that Elijah showed that would encourage them also to be bold the way that Elijah was. Even though there was no fanfare, there was no clear, you know, like there was no um, obvious rejoicing at this day because all the people remained to be Baal worshippers, right? But there was people who, are, who benefit. Also, like when we speak about the work of the church, we say, you know what, no matter what we do in the church, like the world is still a wicked place. They're still filled of darkness. And there's still so much evil and wickedness and everyone is like going in the wrong direction. What is the work that we are doing? How is it that we are being the light of the world and the salt of the earth when we see all of the stuff going wrong around us? Well, the answer is we don't know. Like maybe, maybe, there, maybe, maybe we don't even know who is it that's benefiting. Maybe we don't even realize who is being touched by it. Maybe the majority of the people that are benefiting from the work of the church is done in secret that we don't even recognize who are these people who are benefiting from the things that we do. So it doesn't change the fact that we are called by God to serve. We are called by God to be a light and the salt, right? Even if we can't recognize directly. Now, of course, there are some people we do recognize directly, people who hear about the church and come. But, but there are also people who don't know, or who, who we don't know, that are still benefiting. So here again, like God is saying, don't worry about who is it benefiting from your service, right? There are other people who are also believers. You are not the only one. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. Okay, so Elijah finds Elisha, who was like farming, and he takes his mantle and he throws it on top of Elisha. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. So Elisha understood what this meant. Like putting the mantle of Elijah on Elisha means come and you will be a prophet. Like come and, and serve. Come and be my disciple. And so Elijah is saying, let me go say goodbye to my family first. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh and uh, using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So uh, uh, Elisha knew he was being called to be a prophet and he would be a disciple to Elijah. And Elijah was not threatened by the idea that he was asking to say goodbye to his family, but he saw himself like like as a servant of God who goes where he is called. So he went and he said goodbye to his family and, and then he went. So also we see Elijah, something we learn from Elijah is that he was not attached to any particular service, but he was attached to God. 
When God told Elisha that you are going to anoint your successor, he was not threatened by this. Right? He was not threatened. Like if someone were to come, let's say, to our work, our boss comes and he says, I want you to train this person who is going to take your place. And he says, just train them. Train them well, right? Because they are going to take your place. How would we respond to that? Probably not very well, right? Now, of course, in the idea of having a job like that's financial security, and of course, it affects us and something. But, but here, when Elijah, who is the prophet, right, the most prominent prophet, right, of God, and God comes and says, I want you to train the person who's going to come after you, and, and he will replace you. That's exactly what God says. He will be your successor, right? Elijah is not trying to stop this from happening. He's not complaining about it. Because Elijah saw his service as just, this is a service of the moment. And this is a, a very important principle for any of us who are serving God in any capacity to understand. This is our service in the moment. This is not our identity. This is not who we are. This is what we have been called to do in the moment. It might change. It will change, for sure. Like, it will definitely change. Because we will, at one point, reach the point where maybe we are, don't even have the capacity to do this service anymore and we have to let it go and sometimes people struggle to let go of things right in the church they want to hold on to something so tightly they can never let it go to the next person even if that next person is going to do a better job of it than them the person who truly like cares about the service the most is the one who doesn't have to be an integral part of it the, per the person who is willing to offer all that they have to the church but once they realize that there's another person that offers even better than me, maybe it's time for me to give up the mantle. You know, like even we, we, we use that phrase, like to give up the mantle to the next person. That's the mantle, the mantle of Elijah. Have you ever heard that phrase, the word mantle? I'm not that old. <laughs> yeah, somebody look it up. It's a thing. Um, so, so. So we see this in Elijah. All Elijah cared, like he was attached to God, but he wasn't attached to his pro prophetness, prophethood, right? Like he didn't, that wasn't the thing. Like, like, God, like Elijah's relationship to God transcended his identity as a prophet. And when the moment came that he didn't, he, he wasn't going to be the prophet anymore, okay. Like God calling me to something else. Maybe he didn't realize at the time what that was, okay? Any questions about this chapter? I kind of see symbolisms in what Elisha just did. Mm -hmm. Where like the Yeruk is kind of like the, the, the Mosaic law. And like, um, let's see, it's like symbolizing the Jews like, and, the, and the foods that he made symbolizing his Christ. And like, it gives us like, let's see. And then, like spreading like Christ, uh, like something like Christ and Christianity, like and giving the 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 food to the people, like spreading Christianity to to the world. Like how Elisha is like the successor of Elijah, just like kind of like the the New Testament service, like superseded the Old Testament service. Okay, yes. yeah. And like with the twelve being twelve oxen, supplying the twelve tribes. Mm, so the twelve oxen. Interesting. Okay, we yeah, haven't thought of that. Read it, Jeff. I was wondering, is it normal for God's prophets to anoint kings of other nations? Um, evidently. <laughs> 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 uh, 
um, it's I, mean, I can't remember if this if that is mentioned in other places, um, but it it shows like the kind of like the honor that Israel had in the eyes of the other nations, like that that even other nations would be willing to concede the 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 the, the prophet of God would be the one to come and to anoint the king. So it it showed something about how like the reputation that Israel had, the 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 reputation of God that he had. Like um all throughout all this period of history and before, for all of the uh, neighboring nations, they knew that um like for instance that Israel is the nation or the children of God whom God brought out of Egypt through the miraculous Red Sea crossing. That was something that all the nations knew right and 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 as israel gained power um after conquering the other nations in the promised land all the neighboring nations knew that this was because god was with them so there was something unique about israel that all the other nations identified and it goes back to the idea that even though they didn't believe in god and yet they still recognized that there was something special about israel so yeah they the, like the prophets of israel had great honor in the in the other in the eyes of the other nations like when um, Elisha was called, like he was found doing stuff with his cows. And then like when he got the cloth, he was like, okay, hold on. And he almost like burns his old life, right? He like p breaks apart the equipment, burns that, kills the cows, says bye to his, like there was no going back. And I think that's hard because it'd be nice. Like, you know, there's always like that safety net of like, oh, I can just get out of the service and go back. But yeah. He basically killed the cow and the thing that moved it and was like this is it like we are we're going and you see that in the lives of all of the disciples right like all the disciples who were fishermen you know it strikes me always like you know we talk about the miraculous catch of fish right like so the fishermen like saint peter and the others were there and um after they had this miraculous catch of fish and then on the seashore like Peter bows down before Christ and he says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And, and, and then the Lord says, follow me, right? And when he says, follow me, St. Peter follows him. So even the miraculous catch of fish that they just caught, they left it behind. It says they left behind the fish, the nets, and their family, right? So the, the calling of God is so like strong that they would be willing to leave, exactly like you said, their entire life behind. Even the blessings, like even the physical blessings that they received, like those blessings of the fish was from God. Like it was a godly blessing to them, right? It was good. But even that, they left it. They're like, you know what? We don't even want this. Like this, the, the life we are called to is a higher and better life than the life that we have. And those people who are truly like in tune and, and, and strong in their relationship with God, this is what they do. This is even like how monks, when they become bishops, you know, I've never talked to any monk who went into the monastery wanting to become a bishop right like that's not they, they're seeking a life that's the exact opposite of that exact opposite so the fact that they're being called to be a bishop is something like antagonizing it's not what they want even though we look at it as like the highest rank in the church the the thing like the, the thing that the, the rank that receives the greatest glory but the monks w wanted to leave the world right but so even this like paradise for them the, the monastery which is for them like a place of peace and calm and and, and joy they even r leave this behind in order to go into the world and to actually suffer a lot more 
in the service than they would have like in the monastery. So we see this pattern again and again and again that when someone is called to serve God in whatever capacity, they leave behind the comfort, even their own family like here, um, in order to follow. Okay. Chapter 20. Okay. Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him, with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. What is Samaria? Capital of Israel. Okay. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, O oh my, uh, my lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. So here the king Ahab, he's, he's afraid of, of, of Ben-Hadad and, and, and the invasion, right? So he, when, when Ben-Hadad pretty much says everything you have is mine, the king says, yeah, you can take what you want. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. Meaning, the things that you care about most, those are the things that we're going to take, and we're going to plunder them. Right? This is, again, the, the punishment on Israel. This is the punishment that God is allowing to come on Israel. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent for me, for my wives, for my children, for my silver and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So his advisor was saying, Don't give in to him. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria, for a handful for each of the people who follow me. Okay, so um, initially Ahab consented to give some plunder, but then when Ben-Hadad kept going beyond and beyond and beyond, he said, no, I, I can't anymore. And so Ben-Hadad responded angrily and said, no, I'm going to completely destroy you. Okay. One interesting thing when I was reading this that kind of came to my mind. Um, Ahab, he is an idol worshiper or no? So God is punishing him? So is Ben-Hadad an idol worshiper? Yeah. So why is God not punishing him? Because he doesn't know better. So in Hebrews 12, verse 6, it says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Meaning, the ones whom God corrects are the ones whom he loves. And he, he loves because they are his children. And he wants to restore them to himself. Because the people of Israel had a special place in, in, in the eyes of God because they were called to be his children. Of course, now, like in the New Testament, Israel represents the church, right? But at this time, the people of Israel had a special place in the eyes of God. And when the people would rebel against God, God wants to bring them back. So even when we see God as allowing punishment, right, for, for, for his people, 
This is not done in a in a in a in a in a wrathful way to destroy. God's purpose is not to destroy. God's purpose is to restore and bring back again. Which is why we see even he uses the idol worshippers of the other nations to be the means of punishment for Israel, even though they are committing the same sin. Right? They are committing the same sin. But the one whom the Lord loves he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives, and so he wants to bring back purity and restore Israel again to what they were. Um, so the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. What does that mean? Yes, the one who takes off his armor was the one who won the battle, right? They're both going to put on the armor to go to battle, but the one who takes it off at the end is the one who won the battle. So the one who should boast is not the one who puts on the armor, but the one who takes it off. So he's, he's saying, let's just see what's going to happen, okay? Don't, don't boast prematurely. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he and the kings were drinking at the command post, that he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. Suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So there's this prophet, nameless prophet, okay, came to King Ahab and said what? That God is saying, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now this is strange. <laughs> why, why is God calling the king, anointed the kings of Syria to come and to destroy Israel, but then sending a prophet to Israel to tell them that you will conquer Syria. Yeah, because God does not want to destroy them. He wants them to see that they are under threat. Right? There is a threat, and if you want to be saved from the threat, like I am the one who's going to help you in the threat. So you see, like God is using every means at his disposal to show gentleness and to show mercy. He, he, he's, he doesn't want to jump to destruction. He doesn't want to jump to like, like, the, the, like using his full power to destroy because his whole goal is not to destroy. His whole goal is to restore. So he doesn't want the Israelites to die. But he wants them to see that they need him, that they need his presence, and that his presence is what saves, and that, and that they would feel toward him like genuine love because of he is wanting to intervene to protect them. He is their protector, even though they have rejected him. You know, like, like this is the quality of God. We see this with Christ on the cross when he is forgiving those people who are crucifying him, and that he is allowing himself to be crucified at the hands of those people who hate him, so that those very same people can be saved. Right? We see this here, that God is, is willing to endure even the rejection of the people, but still showing them mercy and kindness and patience. Right? And he wants them to see that he is present with them. Like his reaction, God's reaction to the rejection of the people, God's reaction to the idol worship of the people is not to come enraged, seeking to kill them, 
but wanting to show them even more kindness so that they wake up and they say, you know what, God is always kind and gentle with us. Why is it that we are seeking and, and worshiping these other gods? So you see, God has all these different tactics, all these different methods. But the, the, the end result of all of the methods is to bring us to him. So like you might have a person whose entire life was filled with only good things. And then you might have another person whose life is filled with so much suffering. And you have another person who, you know, like, like was always a Christian their entire life. And you have another person who lived away from God their entire life and maybe came to God at the very end. Everyone's life is very different. But, but the, the thing that is in common to all people in the whole world is that God wants them to come to the knowledge of the truth so that they can be saved. And in whatever circumstances that they have, that God operates, whether visibly or invisibly, in order to bring them to the truth, even if they never realize that this is what's happening. And so the next time that we have difficult situations in our life happening, that we don't know or understand why is it that they're happening, we should consider, like, God is using this for my salvation somehow, right? The God who operates this way and serves his people this way and is so gentle with his people, even those who actively reject him, he loves me enough to be in my life even when I can't see him, right? And so, like, we see, we see here the mercy of God. So, after the prophet said this to Ahab, saying God is going to protect you, right? So, Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, who will set the battle in order? And he said, you. So, he's telling Ahab how to, how to plan the battle. He says, you will be the leader, and you will get the young leaders of the provinces, it is through them that you will have victory. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. The young leaders of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol, and they told him, saying, Men are coming out of Samaria. So he, said, so he said, If they come out for peace, take them alive. And if they come out for war, take them alive. So take them alive no matter what. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them. And each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do, for in the spring of the year the king of Syria will come up against you. So this was the first battle with Syria. Israel won the battle. And he was told, like, don't be complacent because, is, because Syria is going to come up against you again. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their, God, uh, their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So they're inventing reasons. Like, why is it that we lose? Well, it must be that their gods are the gods of the hills. So because we were in the hills, their gods were with them. But if we fight them in the plain, then we will be stronger than them. So do this thing, dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places, and you shall muster an army like the army you have lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So they're mustering a new army, preparing for the next battle. 
So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, so he's saying, I will prove to them that I am the God of everywhere, not just the God of the hills. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was that on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city. Then a wall fell on the 27,000 of the men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into an inner chamber. Then a servant said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waists and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. So they're seeking mercy from King Ahab, right? And, and, and hoping that he is going to have mercy on them and not kill them. And he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. So he called him his brother, meaning he's showing him some act of mercy. Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at this word and said, Your brother Ben-Hadad. So he said, Go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he had him come up into the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore, and you may set up marketplaces for yourselves in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. Okay, so the end of all of this is that Ahab spared the life of the king of Syria and he made a treaty with him and he made some kind of like economic agreement. Uh, Syria returned some of the cities that they had taken previously back to Israel and allowed them to set up like some trade routes and marketplaces and so on in Damascus. Okay. But what we see here is that God did not want him to make such a treaty. God did not want him to make peace with Syria. All throughout the history of Israel, God tells Israel, do not make peace treaties with anyone. Destroy them because they are a source of, of, of like stumbling for you. But Israel would always see like the, the benefit of when they felt like they had the upper hand, they would make these treaties and they would, they would benefit financially somehow from turning other nations to be their servants or to make money from them and get tributes and so on. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord. Now pay attention, this is interesting. There's a prophet. He says to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, strike me please. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. Okay, so <laughs> this prophet says to this man, 
God is commanding you to hit me. Okay. And the man said, no, uh, I'm not going to do it. And so he punished him. He said, because you did not hit me, a lion is going to come and devour you. So next time, if this happens to you, you know what to do. Okay. And he found another man and said, strike me, please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. So to, to give you an understanding of why this is happening. Many times God uses real life examples of the prophets to teach a message, right? So like for instance, we see like in the story of Hosea the prophet, what did God ask Hosea the prophet to do? To marry a harlot, why? To symbolize God's relationship to Israel. God's relationship to Israel. Because Israel was playing the harlot. They were worshipping other gods. So in order for the people to understand something that was spiritual, that was difficult for them to comprehend, he allowed the prophet to be kind of a stand-in for himself. To symbolize God. And then have some something that the people can understand happen to the prophet, which would then make them understand what is it that, that they were doing to God. And this, and there were many times. And the prophet Ezekiel also, he told him to do many things. And um, so, so this is what's about to happen here. God is preparing this prophet to be kind of like a symbol to explain to Ahab why letting Ben-Hadad go was wrong. Okay? And why he's going to be punished as a result. So instead of asking this prophet to like hurt himself, he went to someone and he said, inflict a blow on me. Now, maybe we tried difficultly to try to understand why is it that the punishment of the first one who refused to strike him would be like that he would be devoured by a lion, right? But somehow it was made clear to this person that this was the word of God. Like God is commanding you to do this and this person refused. So he's like, like he's, he's rejecting what God told him to do. So the second time now, the prophet went to a different person and told him, strike me, okay? And this time, he did it. And he says what? The prophet departed, waited for the king by the road, and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. So he didn't know who he was. So evidently, this prophet was like, maybe King Ahab knew who he was, but in this, he was disguised, so, it, so the, prophet, the, the king didn't know who this prophet was. Now, as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle. And there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. So the, the, the prophet who is injured, okay, he is telling a story to the king. He's saying, I was in the midst of the battle, okay, and, and, and some man was brought to me and I was told to guard this man, right? And that if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life. So if I were to let this man go, then I would be punished because I was called to guard him. Or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Right? So while, while the, the prophet is saying, while I was busy doing something, the person I was supposed to guard, he, he left. He, he ran away. Then the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided it. 
So the king is, after hearing this story, he said, yes, you deserve the punishment that you are going to get because you are called to guard the man and you let him go. What does this sound like? What other story is similar to this? Nathan and David. When, when Nathan is coming to rebuke David, he doesn't just start out with the rebuke, but he tells him a story. You're right about this man who had the sheep and, 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 and you know, it was taken from him and what should be happen to this man? And David was like very indignant. Now that we have to kill this man, you know? And then he said, you are the man, you know, like very dramatically, all right? So this is similar, all right? He's saying, he's saying the king is the one who decided the, the, the judgment for this, for this um, transgression that he let this man go, okay? And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes, also very dramatic. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Then he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. Hmm. Yeah. Did he have the man inflict the wound just so it looked like he had been in battle? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just so he looked like he was in battle. Okay. Hmm? Some or no, some random guy. It wasn't like he just needed someone to inflict a wound on him. Right? Like, he first asked that the first person, some random person, inflict a wound on me. And he said no. So he was devoured by the lion. And then the next person he found, he said, like, inflict a wound. And he said, okay. And so he did. And that was it. We don't hear about th that man again. Okay? So then after that, the prophet, the one who's been wounded, he is the one who goes and talks to the king. Okay? So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came back to Samaria. Okay, so the en this is the end of the chapter. So, so the king, having received now this word, right, this punishment that's going to come upon him, when he says, um, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. Ben-Hadad. Oh. Right, because, because the king, Ahab, had mercy on Ben-Hadad instead of destroying him, which is what God had wanted him to do. Okay. Um, any questions before we conclude? Okay. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day and for every blessing that you give us. We ask, O God, that you fill us with yourself and you enrich us, O Lord, with your word at all times. Help us, O God, to see it as a protection, as a shield, as uh, a reason, O Lord, for our hope that we look to you, O Lord, and to your promises and that you are present with us at all times, protecting us, O Lord, from all of the sin and the darkness that is in this world. We ask, O Lord, that you transform our lives and you help us to perceive and understand your presence at all times before us. Fill us with your spirit, O God, and help us, O Lord, to understand your word not only with our mind but also with our heart and to be overflowing with the love, O Lord, that you show us. So help us to see, O God, the magnitude of your mercy and how, O God, even when we fall into sin, you restore us again to you, O Lord, with the most gentle way. But, ask us, uh, but, but help us, O Lord, to always repent and to bring us, O Lord, a heart of contrition 
so that we stand before you, O Lord, knowing that we are unworthy of your mercies and your goodness, and that we see your love manifested at all times through your forgiveness. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also is your spirit.